Burning Books with Eric Beckrubin. Hello, and welcome to the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there is something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we are into the second episode of a new season of Burning Books called Declaration Centenary. And we're looking at books about Israel by writers from within and without, including Syed Kashua, the episode just passed, Orly Castell-Bloom, Dror Burstein, Zachary Lazar, S. Yizar, Yoel Hoffman, and Omri Bum. Some are written in Hebrew, others in English. Some are contemporary, others classics. Today, we're looking at a book that takes a sharp knife through a particular section of Israeli society by looking at the stories of two main characters, one who is the repeated target of suicide bombs, the other who is tasked with being the suicide bomber that finishes the job. The novel is called Almost Dead. The author is Asaf Gavron. It was originally published in 2006 and translated by the author and James Lever. To me, and I would think to many, there's a sheen that lines stories that are set in foreign countries. It's our tendency to romanticize, which is either natural or horribly orientalist, depending on your perspective, but it lines the pages of any such book. Novels that take place in Israel have, again, perhaps just to me, but I suspect not, a milk and honey filter on them. It's partially the legacy of Amos Oz and A.B. Yehoshua, their often entrancingly warm narrative tone. It's partially the vestiges of many Jesus novels I've read, from the half-amazing The Gospel According to Jesus Christ by Jose Saramago, to Jim Crace's Quarantine, to Norman Mailer's The Gospel According to the Sun, and Per Lagerqvist's Barabbas. It's also partly the earthy simplicity and immediacy and damn it, I'm just going to say it, the sensuality of Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, and of course, the Bible itself might have something to do with it. Israel is the name of a territory on this planet, but it is also an idea, a series of myths, and any story that is set there would seem to inherit a doubleness, actual and mythopoetic. Hence the filter. Asaf Kavron's Almost Dead, however, tears away that filter, tears it away, crumples it up, throws it in the garbage, and watches it go to the dump where it is lit on fire, like so many other unfounded expectations. Where those other books are shot in 70mm, this book is rendered in harsh, high-definition digital. It has a too-close, too-real quality to it, which makes the story uncomfortable, as it undoubtedly aims to be. The story is a back and forth between two characters. The first character is Eitan Einok, nicknamed Croc, a so-called efficiency expert at a firm in Tel Aviv. The second character is Fami Sabi, a young Palestinian who has no job per se, except to infiltrate that Tel Aviv efficiency firm in order to kill Croc, who by surviving two suicide bombs and a sniper attack, has been turned into a national celebrity. Neither character is particularly likable. 
simplification and categorization of any kind being anathema to this book, but they are to various degrees and at various times sympathetic and understandable. So let's start with Croc. In the opening pages, he is on the way to work in what's called the Little Number Five, a minibus that follows the route of the Number Five bus, but because it carries fewer passengers, would seem to be a less likely target for suicide bombers. In these opening pages, the paranoia inherent to the general situation, where anyone on the bus could be your murderer, is casually but accurately portrayed. For example, Croc notices a woman who is noticing a man, and he notices the man too, but because the woman seems hysterical, he mentally defends the man, because he doesn't want to seem hysterical like the woman, even though being hysterical actually seems rational, given the circumstances. Parallel to, and as part of, these mental acrobatics, Croc strikes up a conversation with a third person, a man of about his age, and the two of them eye the man being eyed by the woman, and congratulate themselves on their counter-paranoid, non-hysterical response. A few minutes later, Croc leaves the minibus for his office, and the man he was looking at and mentally defending detonates a bomb and kills everyone on board. Here's Croc's reaction along with that of his boss, Jimmy. My first thought was, fuck, how will I get to work from now on? Those fuckers hit every possible means of transportation. Am I going to have to take cabs now? Buy another car? Too expensive. I entered Ynet again and read the update. Every passenger on the minibus killed. Yeah, I go on one every day, I was telling everyone nonchalantly. Unbelievable. The bomber could have been on the same number five I was on. Who knows? Only then did I remember the dark guy and his suit bag and the old lady who suspected him, whom I'd told not to worry, and the other guy who asked me to send some unspecified message to his girlfriend. This is crazy, I thought. I have to get hold of this guy. And then the phone rang. Croc, I'm alive, I answered. "Uh Uh-huh, said Jimmy. Listen, next week there's a meeting in Brussels. It's important. In all this, it's perhaps Jimmy's response that is telling. The bomb happened, his employees survived, No wasting time thinking about it. They don't work at an efficiency firm for nothing. And as the story progresses, Croc takes on much of his boss's macho, forward-looking obliviousness, though it's never entirely clear that this is what Croc wants to think, or to be. And for the rest of the novel, we follow him as he explores possibilities outside his daily life, outside his current relationship, outside his city and family, in order to sort himself out. While we meet Croc in midlife, progressing herky-jerky into the future, we find the teenaged Fami in what seems like the final days of his life, in hospital, comatose, having suffered terrible injuries. He is a body on the verge of giving up, but his mind and memories are still very much intact. So as Croc goes forward, Fami tracks back and tells his story in reverse to explain how he got to the hospital gurney where he now teeters between dying and death. Fami was born into a family divided between those who love dignity and those who will not give up on life. Those who love dignity are obstinate, rebellious, determined, martyrs in the making, if you believe the things they say. Those who love life do not see the value of struggling and rebelling if it's just going to get you killed. While Fami's conservative father pulls Fami in one direction, school, engineering, jobs, Fami's pseudo-radical brother pulls him in another, 
murder, engineering, afterlife. And right to the end of the story, it's unclear which way Fami will go. Fami seems aware of this ambivalence, and when he tells us about his family history, the narration is partially poignant, partially respectful, and partially mocking, as if he's not sure how he wants to interpret his family's self-mythologizing. And these parts, from the reader's perspective, comprise some of the most fascinating material in the novel. Croc and Fami give us two sides of the infinitely sided shape that symbolizes the so-called situation between Israelis and Palestinians. And the relationship between these two characters sustains the novel. But for me, the most interesting facet in Almost Dead comes via what I thought was the best character in the book, and a truly fantastic creation. He's the talk show host called Tommy Musari. Tommy Musari is like Mike Wallace by way of late-style Dr. Phil and Eric Andre, an on-air sermonizer whose over-the-top exaggerations means he quickly becomes a parody of himself. He hosts a show called Noah's Ark, which, we are frequently told, is the number one rated television program in Israel. Whenever it's on, all other characters in this novel watch it. On Noah's Ark, Tommy Musari pairs two opposed individuals, right and left-wingers, for example, and has them duke it out with words, threats, and taunts in front of a goading, baying, applauding audience. It's like a coliseum where people give thumbs up and thumbs down on the most complex and irresolvable matters, both mocking and reflecting the wider world's inability to understand complexity. While Noah's Ark takes place in the real world of the novel, it also plays a recurring role in Fami's subconscious, where Fami is one of the guests. Noah's Ark on Channel 2. Israel's number one program with television's brightest star, Tommy Musari, booms the announcer. And Tommy Musari says, Fami Omar al-Sabiq? And I say, yes, good evening. Good evening, Fami. You decided to follow in the footsteps of your grandfather and shoot Israeli cars in Bab al-Wad right? And you? My partner in the Ark is a Jew. You shot and killed a 12-year-old boy in the Alamari refugee camp in Ramallah for making an indecent gesture at you, right? Says the Jew. The audience applaud and we both smile, and Tommy Musari smiles too, with his one non-glass eye. Fami, he says, tell us why you decided to follow in your grandfather's footsteps. I always admired Grandpa, I say, and he loved me. His name was Fami too. He used to tell us how he hit the Jewish convoys going to Jerusalem in 48. The audience applaud. Well, I wanted my life to be worth something too. Like most things in this book, that last phrase, I want my life to be worth something too, has a double meaning. Worth is determined by values. But what are Fami's values? Does he possess any that are uniquely his? There's no way to answer that question definitively, and in fact, ambivalence is the illuminating spirit of the book as a whole, and is always being expressed in clever ways through its two principal characters. For example, Croc's constant run-ins with suicide bombers and snipers seem to mark him as a character, not necessarily a person, but a character, with a death wish. At the same time, Fami, on the verge of death, struggles to exert his drive for life. I've said that Croc progresses herky-jerky into the future, just as Fami is stuck in the past, 
But another way of seeing it is that Croc is walking backwards, zombie-like, into the future, while the comatose Fami is stuck in a monotonous replay of the present. While the alternating chapter structure is maintained throughout the novel, this only highlights how everything within those chapters lacks any kind of determining structure. Alongside ambivalence, partnering with ambivalence, amplifying ambivalence, is this book's sense of humor, which expresses a blasé outlook towards life and death. Aside from Musari, one of the other notable secondary characters in Almost Dead is Danny Ronan, an on-the-scene reporter who is always appearing just minutes after the latest disaster, getting tips, in quotation marks, from the police and army, and reporting leaks, also in quotation marks, on the location of future reprisals. Ronan's job, it seems, is to stoke and calm fear at the same time, and in this way he's like a Mediterranean wolf blitzer, maybe a bit younger, beefier, more casually dressed, but taking on the same role of anxiety-inducing background noise. Because Ronan is serious about tracking his latest lead, and because in doing so, he is seen as a kind of clown in the eyes of many viewers, he exemplifies the author's blasé attitude towards disaster. But as with humor in many other situations, and I'm starting to think this is true of humor in all situations, when it piles up, as it does in this book and in Dancing Arabs by Syed Kashua, which we talked about before, and in many other novels, for example, Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, when it piles up, humor begins to signal something else. And as in Vonnegut, I think, the humor in Almost Dead signals rage. By making light of what is, by any measure, a complete and needless disaster, and by making light of it repeatedly, each new joke in this book begins to feel, for the reader, like it's scraping at a wound with the aim of getting fresh blood to flow. As with the high-def prose of the novel, which looks too closely at things and reveals too much in the process, the anger in Almost Dead comes at very close proximity. Thank you for listening. Next up on this Burning Book season will be a review of the strange and appealing Human Parts by Orly Castell Bloom. Burning Books is part of the Litopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes. Subscribe and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to litopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod, and you can reach me at facebook.com slash Eric Beck Rubin. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music. To Peter Cox, executive producer of this program, and as always, go Jays.